special episode of New Hope Underground, and this is an episode featuring a roundtable discussion we had a while back uh, with several people uh, that work specifically uh, with people who are hurting, you know, people who run into financial issues, people who are facing poverty situations, and sometimes sometimes people who are facing other kinds of issues and addictions and hurts. And I just thought it would be a great discussion to have because we've been talking on New Hope Underground and some of our Jesus talks about what Jesus says about the poor and also just how we should be uh, in this world. And so I thought, what a great discussion to have. And so we we originally had this planned because it went along with the particular series that we were going to do here at church, but the series did not actually materialize. Uh, but I did not want to waste this discussion. I wanted you to hear it. It's a good discussion, so I'm going to play that now in its entirety. And the people who came in, uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves as the podcast gets going. So here you go, our roundtable discussion. Okay, hi, I'm Nicole Eversall, and I'm a caseworker at Kimmerer Village. And pretty much what I do is help families get back together and so I deal with foster parents biological parents and kiddos everybody everyone yeah so you work with division I work with division (laughs) in a lot of ways trying to bring some people together a little bit for the sake of a child yeah 100% and I guess the motivation behind it started with kids I just love them, and I just want them to have the best life they can, and know I want the kids to know they have someone on on their side. And sometimes they believe me, and sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, silly question, but why do you love kids? Gosh, well, I love a specific age of kids, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's. No, oh, go ahead. You know, confess everything. It's only a lot of people listening. Don't worry. Everyone's listening. No, I do love all kids, but I have a special place for like junior high. Okay. And they still have like that kid mentality, but they can be serious in the next sentence. And it's just, wow. You bet. And you try, can try to figure out how to be an adult in the midst of all that at the same time. Yeah. And I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> Still. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm with you. <laughs> um, and they teach you a lot. You know, you think you're going to go into it like, I'm going to change these kids, and they end up changing you. So a lot of the families you work with, would you, I mean, you would classify as fairly low-income Yeah. families. Not, and obviously, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking in generalities throughout this whole podcast, just so everybody knows that. Right. Because I realize not everybody fits into a rich box or a poor box or anything like that. It's more about uh, us just trying to get a handle on culture and also, also for us to have a discussion that specifically uh, when it concerns the people less fortunate because we want to gain compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But thank you. How about you, Amy? 
Okay, so I'm Amy Reynolds. I am a supervisor in a probation department in Coles and Cumberland County, and I also serve as the drug court coordinator for Coles County Drug Court. Wow, that seems like a lot. Sometimes it is. <laughs> but exactly, I, I really am curious, because you and I have talked a little bit, but I really am more curious as to what exactly is a probation person do I mean is it solely working with prison systems no it's not working with prison prison. that would be a parole officer okay I mean we do get people to come um, out of prison and are on probation but our typical uh, caseload is just strictly probation whether it's juvenile or adult and so we basically enforce the court or the judge's order Um, you know, telling them they need to go to treatment or do community service or whatever the court is telling them they need to do. We try to enforce that. We make referrals. We work with DCFS. We work with law enforcement. We work with uh, treatment providers, mental health, substance abuse, um, and trying to get the people to change their behavior, which then changes their life. So you work with a lot of different services then for people. I mean, so you, you, do you, I'm guessing you experience firsthand you know, being with families. Yes. And seeing how that's all connected together, families and behavior and everything else, I guess. Yes. We have the person on probation, but yet we go into their homes, we see how they live, we see their children, we see their parents, uh, we go to the schools, um, talk to their teachers, and um, we're kind of involved in basically every aspect of their life in some circumstances or whatever they'll let us into. And we really, um, our, our main focus is really to um, help them change their behavior so that they don't come back through our doors. It's just not always successful. Well, thanks for the introduction. We're going to get, I'm anxious to get into some discussion and, and to see also how, uh, so how poverty tends to really play a big role into the things you see as well. Uh, Austin, why don't you introduce yourself? Yep. So I'm Austin Haddock. Um, I am a a DCFS investigator out of um, Peoria, uh, Tazewell and Woodford County um, up out of Peoria is where we're based out of. Um, I've been in this field specifically for uh, about five years with with the department since 2018. So two years Um, prior to that, I did casework. with with foster kids as well so you did foster care too yep i did yeah i did placement um that's what i did yep so i did i did that for three years with uh specifically specialized teenage uh boys and those that's probably my favorite group is um just a lot of those teenage the boys specifically because i feel like i can relate a little more because i still have like a teenage boy sense of humor so right. <laughs> like, like we laugh about the same stuff and just, yeah. Yeah. Darren has a teenage boy sense of humor too. Oh, he, yeah. he did placement <laughs> with teenage boys. I pretty much grew up a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Still, still am. So you guys have that in common, I guess. <laughs> we have that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but he's an investigator now. Yeah. You, you, uh, now you and I have had some conversations Austin already. I mean, really amazing some of the things you see. And you're you're in Peoria area. I think you probably already mentioned that. But so yep. it's a little bit of a different area than being down here. You're originally from Windsor. Yep. So you're yep. from, from Windsor, town. Illinois. So yep. Went to graduated from Eastern there in, in Charleston, Coles County. So 
Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, Peoria is just different. I mean, it's, it's very like, I mean, people give it the nickname little Chicago and it's very, um, bigger city based, like in comparison to, um, you know, Matt Toon, Charleston, Windsor, Effingham areas. It's, it's just different. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it called little Chicago before, so I can see how it's different than the rural area down here compared to up there. Yeah. I imagine there's some, some vast differences actually, I would think, but uh, Hey, I'm really interested in some of the discussion we have, how you can shed some light and because of your experiences being a little bit different than even ours. So, uh, I, let's, uh, we're going to move on with the, with some questions and what I'm going to do, if it's okay, I'm just going to throw out, I'm going to throw out a couple questions and, you know, and then just, just converse here. That's what we're, that's what we're about here uh, today. So I, again, I kind of want to want to make sure everyone knows that's listening uh, that we're really not trying to solve anything. I mean, there's no way we're solving the different divide between rich and poor with one sermon or one lesson or one discussion. No one ever expects that. We, you know, that's that's far fetched. But I think the thing what we're trying to do is this: is that in the end, what I'm hoping, at least with the uh, the direction of where we're headed, uh, is I think we we lost Austin, but I think we got him back. Nope. I'm good. Yeah. Sorry. Hear him okay? Yeah. Okay. We're back. Oh, okay. Yeah. I accidentally hit a so, button. Sorry. <laughs> he hit a button. It's oh, okay. all good. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. Okay. Uh, so basically one thing that's real important, I think, for us to understand as we're kind of proceeding with this discussion is that uh, we just acknowledge the fact that there is a divide between rich and poor in a way in our country. It's not clear cut. It's kind of gray. It's not necessarily just you know black and white in that regard but it is it is there is tension if you will there's tension and it's systematic uh if you will uh it's it, what i mean by that is it's it's really down deep in the system uh, and and it's hard for you guys to kind of work in the system if you will it's kind of hard to uh get a handle on how in the world we can help such overwhelming issues uh and problems uh but what is, let me ask this question first, and this may be, you know, this is just an opinion question, but I think it'd be interesting to hear, hear what you guys have to say. When I, when I say rich and poor, uh, what do you think of when, I, when you hear rich? Just be honest. Contextually. I think of like Beverly Hills, you know. That's the rich. Like they're loaded. Right. You know, people have so much money they can't count it, that kind of thing, and they don't know what to do with it. They're bored. They're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> poor poor people. Much. Yeah, yeah. They're bored. They're bored. Okay, so when you think of rich, you think of Beverly Hills. Yeah. Rich. What, what about you, Amy? I can see that. Um, I asked Aaron that same question because I said it kind of changes a little bit of the answer, but I think sometimes poor people see people who pay their bills and work and have are blessed to be able to get what they need financially. They see us as rich. So right. I was like, are we talking about the really, really wealthy, the really, really wit rich, or are we talking about normal people who work, pay their bills and have left over at Our the middle end of the class. Month. Yeah. Upper class. Yeah. So, so to the poor, everyone's, a lot of people are rich, including people who don't really have a lot. Like we would, we wouldn't say that we're rich, would we? But at the same time, I wouldn't say I'm poor. Right. Right. Right, so, right down the middle. Some people would, it's just the way they view, you view their perception, I guess. Right. What do you think of Austin? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say it, it really is based on perception. I mean, you know, when I think of rich, it's, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, yeah, just people who have enough money, like so much money, they just don't know what to do with, you know, just spending, spending, spending on just whatever, um, you know, just to blow their money. Um, but it's like then when you're thinking about people who really are poor, it's like they would see, you know, just your average people who are, um, yeah, paying their bills on time. They have a house, they have a car, like they're not paying rent, you know, that type of thing. Even just they'd see like lower middle class as being rich, you know? Right. So it's kind of depending on your class on what you think rich and poor is. Do you kind of agree it's about perception? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really based on perception, I would say, to some extent. Awesome. I think it. I think it's important to answer this question in a way, simply because when we go forward with our conversation, like I said, we're going to be speaking in generalities. Uh, but I'm. I'm really. Uh, I guess in one way, when you when you look at the scripture, and what Jesus teaches, I mean, obviously he spent a lot of time talking about the poor, helping the poor, reaching out to the poor. The New Testament is full of commands about helping the poor. Uh, we can talk about Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says, to the least of these. It's not just the poor, but also people who are hurting, sick or in prison or, you know, don't have clothes, don't have food. So he's, he even gets very specific. James even says that uh, true religion is this, that we help widows and orphans. You know, so when you, and James just, can, you know, he just goes on a rip-roar kind of sermon in his, in his book about against the rich, really. What, what he would consider the rich. Um, but I, I think it's interesting because in those days, in that culture, there was such a huge division. It was the real rich and the real poor. I mean, that's what, and the masses were the real poor. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit harder of a discussion in some ways when you consider a middle class uh, in that discussion. But I think what I want to do is I want to I want us to really focus in our discussion to understand like to to assume if we will I would like to make this assumption whether we feel it's right or not <laughs> let's make this assumption that we are the rich you know let's make that assumption that we're talking when we say people are less fortunate we're talking about people who can't ma- hardly make it you know week to week sometimes they don't have food on the table sometimes you know their families are maybe even generations of of of, of issues and problems that keep them into in poverty so american poverty is different than other worlds other countries i've been to other countries and seen uh poverty in those situations that i just are it's hard to even talk about you know um it's 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 basically ineffable because of the fact that the things i saw were people had absolutely zero i mean they had dirt and a few things to put up like a cardboard box for a house i mean it was and, and I'm not I'm not trying to make light of uh, the poor in America, but I would like to say that we sitting here right now, and most people who are listening to this, we have to classify ourselves as rich in this discussion, in my opinion. So, will you, what would you guys think are some of the commonalities uh, with those that you deal with on a regular basis that are that are in poverty or in low income? Some of the commonalities that they have, like characteristics or attributes or uh, just things that they, they have in common. Anybody? 
Um, I think it's mostly generational. I mean, I know it can be circumstances, but I think it's mostly generational and that they, they have barriers that are just passed down after generation after generation, lack of affordable housing, lack of education, um, lack of social support. They mm. have no support um, to help them or teach them to strive to do better. So I think it's it's a lot of different things. They have limited resources um, that the, we don't ha- that we have access to or we have easy access to, and they don't. They don't have supportive people in their life pushing them to do better or be better. So would you say one of the common things about people in in poor situations is that it's that it's a generational type of that's pretty common. I think so. Would you guys agree or disagree? What you, what have you seen? Yeah, I'd probably, I would say that I would agree with that for sure. I mean, we see it like with our, with our investigations or like, you know, kids that do end up coming into foster care. Um, we, we see it a lot where it's like, you can look in our, um, database system and it shows like, you know, they had involvement and we're in foster care from, you know, 96 to 98. And then it's like, you can look even farther sometimes and see, you know, not only were, this parent but then it's like the grandparent was in dcfs care foster care um because sometimes our records in certain cases can go back that far um just to where you can really see in our database like the um just the breakdown of where it's been you know they've had a dcfs involvement with family members going back to you know sometimes 1985 (laughs) you know um or, you know, sometimes even I've seen some that had 50 year attentions that went back to like 65, which we didn't have the computer records, but our records are like can go back that far, you know? Um, yeah, I've so seen it, that too. Yep. Yeah. With the generational, he was talking about um, we'll see foster kids and then we'll see in the records the parents' involvement and then the grandparents' involvement and then it generation after generation so i think so it's very common yeah Yeah. they nailed it (laughs) that's go ahead i think it's also some learned behavior because it's what they know it's what they're comfortable with and they just keep repeating that so um they don't ever get out of that because it's all they know and they don't have anybody to show them that it can be different or they don't have the resources to make it different I think that, I think that's astute. I think the thing I, I'm mean, I got a hard question that's not on your list. You ready for this? Uh oh. <laughs> how much of it do you think is is because of our system? Like, in other words, people stay in generational poverty because they never get out because we have a system that doesn't ever want to let them out. I mean, personally, I think our system is broken. It doesn't work it is too easy for these people to take advantage of the system. On the other side, you have other people who are too prideful to take the help. So it right. it doesn't help necessarily the people who really need it, um, but it needs to teach them uh, skills, social skills, um, how to gain support, how to get the education they need to make things different and to become financially and basically independent in all areas of their life. And public aid should be temporary but it it's too easy not to be so for for so for some people i mean the system has afforded them help to actually get out of their generational poverty in lots of ways is that what you're saying and but they just 
some don't take it or some feel like it's easier to stay on the system. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm making sense. That makes sense. Yeah, we have people that struggle with if they work too much, then they lose food stamps. So then they don't work so that they can keep those food stamps. And I mean, and they do get a lot of money staying home. And I think it's a big struggle. Um, but I think there needs to be more education, more uh, skills to help them budget and prepare to become independent. And I don't think we do that. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I mean, I, I can, I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely understand what you're saying. Um, with that for sure. Even seeing it here. I mean, I think the, the housing is a big issue in Peoria. Um, I, Darren and I had, had talked about this previously, but just the way that Peoria is like section eight, like subsidized housing set up just sets people up completely and totally for failure. Um, just in the sense that it's all just isolated, like in the same area where you've got, you know, people running drugs and, you know, there's, there's shootings and violence and everything. And it's just all kind of in this, you know, one, one area that's two, three, four square miles, something like that in downtown Peoria. And there's really not as much housing spread throughout the area, um, to get people out of that situation. Um, and that's, and that's Peoria's, in my opinion, it's Peoria's city in general that is kind of made it to where the only housing is going to be in this specific area because we don't want the other parts of Peoria getting bad from having these people in different different places. I don't know if that... So it literally segregates them but into yeah, I mean, it really, one it, section. It, yep. To where they can't break out of low-income housing. Is there many jobs around there in that section well, and, and that's the thing, too, is like, um, especially, well, it was like right before COVID, I think, like they, it's like a food desert, like, you know, they've got to take public transportation for 35, 40 minutes, at, sometimes I would think to get to Walmart or to get to, really, there's, I mean, there's corner stores where they're going to pay $5 for a gallon of milk, $6 for a gallon of milk, uh, whereas it would be a dollar fifty or something that you know, Walmart. So like, cause there used to be, um, like a Kroger, there were a couple Kroger's and a couple different grocery stores, um, that were in the area that shut down, I think just with, um, going bankrupt or I don't know what the actual issue itself was, but nobody wants to be down in those areas because there's, you know, you're seeing armed robberies and what have you there to where these stores really don't want to be open there, you know? Yeah, that makes sense with crime. You don't want to open a business in a neighborhood where there's crime. So in some, some ways, it's kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but some ways it's kind of cyclical. And when you try to better yourself a little bit, but the resources to your that are open to you are, for instance, like you said, in housing areas that are somewhat isolated, which also means neighborhoods and communities that are somewhat isolated, which means your your options are not as many. Is that what you're saying a little bit? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's really, I, I'm going to say something that's, like I said, we're, we're speaking in generalities, like we've been talking about that this whole time. But I want to I ask this question because 
I think that most people, I'm just being honest, I think, I'm just going to lay it on the line here. I think a lot of middle class people don't understand that cycle. And we ask the question constantly between each other, why can't some of those people in those poverty situations, why can't they just move and get out of it? Why don't they just get a job? Why don't they just, you know, see, we apply ourselves and what we do to, to their situation. How would, how would you respond? Because you guys see a lot of different situations. It's not just that easy, is it? I mean, I think there's a lot of people who assume it is. I think if we had those answers, we wouldn't have a poverty problem. <laughs> yeah. You're so. right. I mean, if we had that, and I'm guilty of having that same thought, you know, of just why can't you just get it together but the opportunities just aren't there like they are for us and i think it's hard for it i think you're right i think it's hard for us to understand that because we've we've had opportunities and i think what he was saying of the community in peoria where they kind of shove that quote unquote class of people over in this one section there's nobody opening businesses there right because of the crime slim. right so they have taken the opportunities from them almost it sounds like i mean i don't want to make assumptions but i just think that i guess what i'm saying is i think that a lot of people in middle class are under the impression that if people would just change this behavior or change that behavior they would just solve all their problems but I'm not so sure that, I, I guess we shouldn't be operating. My concern is, are we operating out of arrogance or are we operating out of compassion? Uh, and do you really think, I guess what I want to hear is you guys work with people every day. I mean, surely you work with some good people who are trying that just, it just seems like they just kind of go back to the generational thing. Uh, do you have any, I don't know, examples or just, where does your, where's your heart at with them? Uh, I mean, I would say specifically, um, just kind of with going back to, um, that area in Peoria, it's, you know, that's where their family's at. I mean, all of their family, all of their friends, like everybody they know, like live, you know, work if they do work, you know, what have you in that area. And so for them to like leave, like they'd be disconnected from, you know, their personal, um, you know, support system. And I think that kind of draws them back in, you know, when they do get out, um, for example, at least that's, that's one example I would say is just where you get their, the whole family's down there and, you know, they'll go and move somewhere else, but you know, either it's too expensive in another area or what have you. And it just draws them back to where the housing's more affordable and where there's family and support close. So even if they were able to leave, they'd be leaving behind family and friends. So it's basically kind of choosing a better life, quote unquote, or to stay with the family and friend roots. Yeah, 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 that's that's exactly what I was kind of saying is it's just it's kind of a tough decision for a lot of people to make to leave because 
it's like they're leaving behind everybody they really know for the most part. I want to ask this question. Do you feel like there really is a big divide between rich and poor in our country? And if so, what are some of the big factors? Amy, do you mind answering that? Um, I think there is a divide, but I also think it's kind of a yes and no question because rich and poor spend money on things that they don't need, both. Right. Right. Uh, their priorities can be messed up. They can mismanage money. They can both cheat the system. They can gain money by taking advantage of people. But I also think that people who are in poverty um, are disadvantaged. They don't have the opportunities that we have. And there is a divide with education. You've got kids who can't focus at school because they don't know where their next meal's coming from or they're hungry or they don't know where they're going to lay their head at night. So they can't focus at school mm -hmm. and then they go home and they have no one to help them. Mom might be working two or three jobs and she's just not there to help with homework or mm -hmm. help in the learning capacity. So I think that creates a big divide. And I think this pandemic is creating an even bigger divide because you have kids who yeah. can get help and you have kids that don't have access to it. So I think there is a divide in a lot of different areas, but I do believe that they don't have the opportunities that we have been afforded. Even like the schools that are wanting to do a lot of online stuff and some kids just don't don't have access to that or right. you know, or their, or their parents aren't around or or whatever. So so the some of the factors that play what are some of the factors that kind of play into this division, if you will? Other, the easiest way to answer this be, well, some people have money, some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the easiest way to play into it. But I, I guess I'm looking at more of the, uh, the if there is an estrangement between the rich and poor, why is it other than just money? Are there emotional or spiritual reasons? Uh, I mean, I would I would say that there there definitely you know is a divide. Um, you know, I mean, I I think some of it could be mismanaged money by people who are impoverished. You know, I mean, but I think you know it goes back to somewhat being generational. Um, but I mean, then you're you you've got the people at least like putting it back kind of into a Peoria setting. It's like, you know, the people who are middle-class and above their school districts, even though they are Peoria school districts, they're good. Um, they're getting quality education, like not just passing these kids through, you know, different grades. Whereas some of these, I would say, um, schools that are, that are like, you know, Peoria central and some of the ones that are really close to the South end area, you know, they, they don't have the resources um, brought in by taxes and whatnot. And, um, you know, the, the education just isn't really quality for the most part. You know, some of these kids are just getting pushed through to graduate because, you know, a lot of places now require a degree to even work a minimum wage job, you know. Um, so I would say education does play, play a big part in it as well. Um, you know, so, and, the subdivisions of Peoria have some of the best school districts where these middle class kids are going in comparison. Yeah, I guess we don't really have that here in Effingham where there's like the south side of 
the town has worse schools than the north side of town or whatever side, you know. It's we have one public high school and everybody goes there. And from what it sounds like Peoria has a major division in there with the resources. I didn't even think about that this far down. That's how middle class I am, I guess. Right. So the division is kind of a domino effect into everything. Schools, work, relationships, people you hang out with, your neighborhood. I mean, it's it's hard, basically, once you're kind of in there, for lack of a better term, it's kind of hard to make any other circles, I would think. That's what it really sounds like. Uh, when I think of... Uh, the battle that we're, we kind of have, obviously I, I work at a church, you know, I've been working at a church for a long time. I grew up poor, basically. Small, it was a small rural town, so it was a little bit different uh, areas. I was still was afforded opportunities and people that helped me, or I, you know, I basically, the state basically paid for me to go to college. I mean, there's, I, there's no way I could have gone to college otherwise. Um, so there were, there were things that helped me get to, you know, to where I'm at now in some ways, but I, but I've been working with the church for years and years and years. I've helped in inner city missions. I've been around the world in different places, working in, like I said, very poor areas and working with people. Um, I remember being so moved one time in a place I was to leave everything I had with them. And came home with nothing, just about some clothes on my back, and I was fine with that, um, because I was just blown away about some of the people I was working with and what they were going through and enduring. I guess here's the thing, though I I really think that people outside the church are really good judges of what the church ought to be doing when it comes to the poor they are probably better judges than we are sometimes. And I want to know, like, you guys are all three, you know, believers and have had experiences in church uh, to some degree. So I'm just curious, like, what should the church be doing? Because uh, I, I don't think we can, the thing that just seems so hard and frustrating is we can't necessarily repeat what the government can do or systems can do, but what should the church be doing? When I say the church, I don't. I want you guys to be as practical as possible, and I'm not. I'm not, I'm not really looking to the straw man, the church. I'm talking about like us, you know, right here, who we are as the church, as believers of Christ. What should we be doing when it comes to uh, helping the poor? I don't know if we could offer just encouragement and. And empowerment to these people. Um, I know with a few of my clients, if I have any positive feedback for them, they almost don't know how to accept it. And I've found that I've had to repeat myself a few times of, you're really good at that, or I'm proud of you for this. And they just look at me like it's the first time they've heard it. And while I love that I can be that. It breaks my heart that it's taken this many years for them to hear that. Mm. And I think it goes back to kind of the 
bigger thing we were talking about of the generational hand down, like maybe members of the church, because I guess we're putting it all on them. Like they need to break their generational gaps. They, you know, and that makes sense. But why does it have to be someone in their family to break the generational gap? Why can't someone on the outside, um, someone of the church, slip that into their ear of, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be. Just because grandma did it and mom did it and dad did it doesn't mean so you that requires some relationships so yeah and rapport <laughs> which in my in my position you know i don't i don't see them only once or twice i'll see these right. people for several years unfortunately um so you have an opportunity to build that rapport i do yeah. um specifically in my position because i do placement um so until the biological parents do their services and a judge says this is okay you can go back i mean i have them so the the cases i started out with are the cases i still have and so i i get a relationship with these kids and i tell them you know i don't want to be here with you until you're 18 but i am here forever if you need even when you age out get adopted you go back to your bio parents whatever that looks like for you i will still be a constant for you you're kind of whispering in their ears the whole time like hey life doesn't have to be like this life doesn't have to be this way yeah so the church then number one needs to build rapport with people it's and and be included i mean one thing that's i already found in corinthians and in james is very very loud about a church that is arrogant with who they minister to. Mm. Like, don't just select people because they have money mm. and they're influential. You know, that we, we actually should be the opposite. We should be looking for, like Jesus talked about, taking the lowest seat at the table, mm-hmm. not the highest one. You know, and he was very adamant and very upset with a lot of religious leaders because they were they were so stuffy and arrogant. So we, we have got to... It's, it's like it's part of what you're saying is I know you do it for your job, but I also know you personally. I mean, it, it breaks your heart when you see kids in those situations, and you just naturally reach out and be in the church. So building the relationship and rapport, I think it's excellent. Uh, Amy, what do you think? I think each of us has a responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus and serve where we can serve. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know you have to use the gifts that God has given you. Um, to do what you can do to make a difference. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It might be taking a meal to a single parent who's struggling or providing transportation to a medical appointment that they don't have access to. Mm. Um, It might be sitting with that new foster mom and meeting some need that they have, uh, just supporting those people in those helping professions, but also doing what you can do uh, to help and genuinely love people who are more disadvantaged than us and it's easy to love like-minded people or people like us it's very difficult sometimes to love these people but i think that we need to do that more and better 
than what we probably do. But there's so many things that go into poverty. I don't think you can just pick one area and say this would fix it or this would help because right. not everybody's needs are the same. But I think you can. everybody has a responsibility to do what they can do and use what gifts they have to just bless other people. That's awesome. I mean, I want to ask you something. It's a little bit related in, way, in a way, but you've seen so many things. What really breaks your heart? I mean, it's overwhelming to you with the, with the, all the experiences that you've had. If you want to come back to it, we can. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. It's sad to see people live like this. It's sad to watch parents get their kids taken from them. It's sad to see someone on probation who you've invested time and energy to to try to change your life to only continue to make mistakes and then go to prison. And yeah, then you see yeah. them um, back on probation after they get out of prison and nothing has changed. And they say they're never going to end back up, uh, you know, the, they're never going to end up back on probation and then they come in through our doors again or you see their kids mm. or you see the parent or sister, brother, whatever. Um, it's sad to me when we go into houses and these kids act like this is normal. Uh, we go into houses, we have bulletproof vests on and guns and tasers and all this stuff and they're not bothered by that. And that always breaks my heart that it's just normal for us to be in their lives because hmm. my kids would freak out if somebody came into my house <laughs> with right. a gun or right. handcuffs it's normal for them for right but it is also, normal. i think you even said that to me we were talking uh one-on-one -on -one. you said someone on the same thing that you're shocked almost how normal it becomes for kids you know to be used to the system if you will so um <laughs> It, it like it really is just normalized in the sense of you know when we go like especially like in the inner city like in Peoria, um, mm -hmm. families had you know ten investigations prior. Um, you know that you walk up, you're like, hey, I'm with DCFS. They're like, oh, hey, come in, like do your home safety checklist. Here's my kids. Talk to them. One off, like they just know our whole procedure and process because they've had so much involvement okay austin i wanted you to if you would answer that last question about what can the church do yeah um i would say maybe a couple things um and i would be maybe speaking kind of church as a whole um sure one thing one thing i think would be super helpful and i don't know what this would look like um exactly especially kind of in in your guys's area specifically, um, just kind of a more rural area. Um, but I, I think like a, almost like a mentoring program would be helpful where it's like, you know, you just had either, you know, couples or individuals, either one kind of come in with families who would sign up for this program and just mentor them, like, you know, and live life with them in the sense of, you know, I'm going to show you, you know, here's how you do your FAFSA, you know, here's how you get aid to go to college and get an education or, you know, Hey, I'm going to help you apply for jobs, you know, in the area, get you and get help, get you a job. And if you need transportation, I'll transport you, you know, X amount of times a week to and from your job, or I don't know, just I, teaching them even to some extent, maybe how to parent just like, here's, here are things that are helpful to raise your kids. Like, um, spending time with them and teaching them some of those um, things that can help kind of maybe break that cycle. Um, 
I would say the other thing too, at least from from my field specifically, is foster parents. Um, you know, really, we uh, my, the agency I work for prior to DCFS, at least, and I think DCFS does it too, to where you know they hold events at churches, and churches are a very very big pull um, for a lot of our foster parents. Um, and I would say just just having you know, if you want to help, like, and haven't really thought about it in the past, like there's a huge, huge, huge need. Um, and I think it's, it's Nicole that is a caseworker, I think, correct? Yeah, Nicole is. Nicole. And I'm, I'm sure Nicole could speak into that too, in the sense of, you know, there are so many kids that are in the foster care system that, that really and truly, um, need good homes, good families. Um, and to do it from a sense of, man, I'm going to be in this kid's life, as I'm needed, you know, whether it's, um, you know, I'm going to have them in my home for two years and they're going to go yeah, back to their huge. parents yeah. or, 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 you know, then having the ability maybe to eventually adopt in the future. Um, and, th- and that's how, you, and I've seen, you know, foster parents from churches bring, um, bring these bio parents with them to church every Sunday, spend time with them, like let them see the kids that way. Um, develop, you know, transportation, develop relationships with them, help them get jobs. And I think that's a really big influential thing in, in a person's life that's never had something like that. So foster parenting would be a huge thing the church could do. And, and Nicole, you would agree with that, I'm assuming. Oh, 100%. Uh, gosh, it just, the amount of kids that that need that kind of a program or well, like Austin said, it's, it's amazing how much contact you would have with the biological parents. You might even be able to drag them with you to church. Right. That would be amazing because, and I'm sure he's experienced this too, a lot of the time the foster home becomes a relative. And so you're literally just kind of setting them back into the situation they were in. And not that you want to, of course, you don't want to split families apart. That's not what we're about. Um, but it would kind of take them out of the generational thing. And I don't know, as a body of Christ, I don't, anybody with the heart for Jesus is going to want to put that family back together, right? you know? And so I, yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think some of the things you're, you're bringing up, uh, Austin, everyone's bringing up, I think there's some things we can actually do even programmically as a church, you know, or trying to encourage people in the church to do because what you're talking about is like life coaching, you know, mentoring, bringing people with you and around. And that could be through a, as a foster parent, that could be just somebody who's helping And the crazy great thing about it uh, here in Effingham is that we have, we already have uh, systems that are doing that. You know, for instance, we have a school mentoring program uh, here in town. We also have the uh, family life center. And they are asking for volunteers, people from churches, to come in and be a, a dad to dads, you know, or be a mom to moms, or be a life coach, like what you're discussing. So if people are listening to us say, well, how in the world do I ever get started with that when I really don't have any relationships with anybody? First of all, seek relationships. Secondly, uh, get involved in places where they there already are meeting needs that you, you can be a part of what they're doing, like the like the Family Life Center uh, or like the U- Unit 40 mentoring here in Effingham. But I'm sure there are plenty of places like that also in uh, 
Peoria. But if the church isn't going to be the hands and feet of Christ, then who's going to be? Just like you were saying, Amy. I really appreciate your guys' time. I know this has been a little bit scattered. We've had some technical issues and uh, everything going back and forth. But I really appreciate your time. I, I would like to just kind of end on one note, and little one little discussion if we can, just real short. Uh, and that just has to do with our faith. You know what? And what is it? If you can, if you can name one thing, and if you can't, don't worry about it because I'm putting you on the spot. But if you can name one thing or one teaching or scripture or anything that just comes to mind when it comes to or what Jesus taught or something that's in the Bible, uh, that just in your upbringing of faith is what's one thing that's always been motivating to you? What's one thing that's always been you've kind of you've kind of held to that, that convicted you that when it comes to uh, helping those who are less fortunate? Can you think of anything? The first thing that comes to my mind is having the same attitude as Jesus Christ. And I can't even tell you where that's at in the Bible. I just know that the Bible says that. <laughs> yes, it does. But um, And lifting others up. So uh, to me, that was the first thing that came to mind, but I've never thought of that before. That's awesome. That comes out of Philippians 2. There's a very specific passage there about lifting each other up, having the mind of Christ. I knew that. Yeah, excellent. excellent. No, that's good stuff, Amy. I think mine is, and I, you'll probably know, um, <laughs> the scripture or something, but I'm no different than them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the difference is, well, I guess it, the difference is I have Jesus, you know, but I don't know their hearts really. I mean, the clientele that I have, um, they don't think as clearly, um, and that's due to some of their extracurricular activities, but I mean, I just look at them and think, you know, trauma doesn't have a class, you know, it doesn't hit anybody less than it hits any, Mm -hmm. you know, very rich people have trauma, very poor people have trauma, the middle class have it. Um, So I don't know exactly what it is that that's what they decided to numb themselves with and that and why I didn't decide to numb myself with that. So I just, I see it so clearly of I'm not that different than them I could have very easily made that decision so how am I to judge that and it just makes me love them more and want to help them more like I could have been that person so how can I help you to move out of that somehow and not literally move out but just I think that's excellent I think that Jesus talked about that in Luke 7 when the woman in the yes in the the Pharisee (laughs) Pharisee's house the woman that comes into the Pharisee's house. I mean, I don't want to get into all that, but it's just an excellent passage that, that says what you're saying. That how do we view ourselves? We're, I mean, we're lost. We're poor, you know, when it comes to our relationship with God. And and when we understand how what he's given us, our true riches are found in Christ. If that's the case, then anyone can have that. It doesn't matter how poor they are or how rich they are. So therefore, what, kind of what you're saying, if I can kind of reword it, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but... What you're kind of saying is the division that we have between rich and poor in this country needs to start. The only way this that divide is going to start to close is if it starts to close with us. We need to start seeing everybody the same yeah. instead of making those kind of sharp judgments and classifications. Right, which I am guilty of making those judgments. I, I am completely um, guilty of that. But, but we need to be aware of that. But, I mean, I get humble every day. I feel like God, God humbles me every day. Like, remember this, Nicole? And I'm like, ooh, 
<laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> what about you, Austin? Okay. So I would say just generally, um, just how Jesus like lived his life and spent his time. Um, you know, it's like he's hanging with the people who are poor. He's hanging, you know, there's the exceptions like here and there who he did hang out with rich people um, and brought brought him to, sorry, brought them to him. But it's like, for the most part, it's like, it's going to be your um, prostitutes and, and poor people that he's spending his time with and ministering to. Um, and that's kind of a reflection of his life, you know, and that's how I think, you know, we need to live, live our lives as well. That's really good. It seems like we say we need to be like Jesus, but we don't really want to be like Jesus. Cause when you look at Jesus, yeah, he's hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the, and the beggars and the paralyzed and the lame and the sick. Yeah, you're exactly right. So just purely taking his example should we should have compassion and figure out somehow some way to help the person next to us hey this has really been good uh any last comments you guys want to make because i, I don't want to feel like oh now we're done but anything that comes to mind okay well hey thank you very much guys really appreciate it and uh thank you for listening on the podcast and we are, I guess if I have one kind of closing comment or wish for this whole thing is, like I said, obviously we can, we can talk to her blue in the face. It doesn't change necessarily things that are out there and what's going on. Uh, but uh, we weren't told by Jesus to necessarily turn the world upside down and make it perfect. We were told, like Amy said earlier, to be the hands and feet of Christ and then allow God to do his work. He's the only one that can change things for real. He's the only one that can turn, take something that's overwhelming and make it actually manageable. So someone told me this a long time ago, and I think it's really good. We need to work during the day as if we're in control and then sleep at night as if God is. And that's not as if, as in like he's not. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, it's just kind of an analogy, meaning the fact that God's in control during the day and the night. But I think that he, when he has called us uh, to be his hands and feet, and that means you know we need to be busy about that, but then go to sleep at night because we don't need to lose sleep over you know, all these issues and problems. That's why I encourage you three in. I know you three have some really tough jobs, uh, and I don't want your job to be honest. I don't know. I don't think I'm not sure I can handle your jobs uh, because of the things you do. But I, I pray, uh, and I want to pray for you before we leave here. I sincerely am saying this, not because we're on a podcast or anything. You, hopefully you guys know me. Some of you know me at least a little bit now, what my heart's like. But uh, I really am saying this uh, sincerely. I really want to pray over you that you get some sleep at night. That you will start to really trust God with the very situations that you find yourself in all the time. Because you can't save the world, you know as much as we want to, and that's not our calling. Your calling is to just, day at a time, try to be like Jesus, like Austin said. So let me pray that over you. Is that okay? And we'll end it that way. Father God, I sincerely just thank you so much uh, for Amy and Austin and Nicole. I just thank you for their hearts, their their the work that they do. I just pray for your blessing over Nicole and in Kimber Village and the, the kids that she works with. I just pray for your your hand to be on them, but I pray more than anything, you'll just, you'll give 
uh, the fire and energy and passion that Nicole needs at the right times, the wisdom, the right things to say at the right times. And most importantly, help her to trust that you are actually giving her those words and for her to sleep at night knowing that you're in charge, that you're going to change things. And, and it may not be the way we think it's going to be, but Father, help help Nicole to have that kind of trust. Father, I pray over Austin. I pray that just it's just a tough, tough work he's got in the city uh, of Peoria. And, and Father, he's got to feel overwhelmed from day to day when he gets calls and has to rush to the hospital and rush over to see families and be with kids and, and have to deal with situations and families that just don't want their kids anymore. I mean, Father, help him when he sees all this not to ever get dis- not to get discouraged, but instead help him to have wisdom and strength to say the right things, do the right things, and be, mo- most importantly, just to act simply uh, as best he can, like Jesus, and and help him not to get bogged down by the legalism that might be around him by other Christians that might try to drag him down. Father, I pray instead that he just might see you in a, in that real way. Father, I also pray for Amy, and I pray for you know, all the people that work in her office, and the people that are associated with the probation office, the DCFS, and the law enforcement. and there's Just so many people there trying to have good hearts and are trying to do some really good things. But, but Father, I just pray you help Amy to realize that she can only do what she can do. Help her also to sleep at night. Help her to just really uh, give, give it her best to, to try to be your voice the best she can. And Father, I, I pray more than anything that these three uh, might find the strength to pray in the morning and pray at night, uh, just as a constant re- reminder that you really are in charge and you care. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.